You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome back to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole. So excited to be here tonight as, um, well, the gang is all back together finally so that we can talk about um, uh, a new mission, an, another mission in the Mission Impossible franchise. And I am so glad to have my co-host here, Christy Morris. We've both made it back from the incredible time we had at Star Wars Celebration uh, and hanging out in Chicago. So, uh, Christy, how are you acclimating to getting back home? I'm glad to be back where it's warm. It feels like I'm at the beach now. Chicago was like a you know the frigid tundra for me being a Georgia girl. So I- I'm glad to be home. But I've got a little bit. And it literally did snow. Twice. On us. But yeah, I'm here with my uh, my Theraflu as my drink of choice this evening. <laughs> mm, delicious, mm. delicious Theraflu. Mm. Oh, man. Well, uh, we are excited because we've all made it here. And that means that John Champion is also with us. And John, it, it is so good to see you as, as we were talking about before we were recording. You have just had a birthday. So the 602 Club welcomes you and ask that you get anything off the shelf that you would like tonight. Oh, that is so generous. Thank you. I will. Um, you know, who, who knows? I, I might try some therapy <laughs> later. It depends on uh, how I feel. Take a shot. But, you know, if you um, mix in a nice bit of whiskey, you get a nice hot yeah. toddy. Oh, that, that's good. <laughs> that is really good. Um, hey, I'd just like to point out, I, I'm glad that you both had such a good time in Chicago. Um, Chicago is a great city, but now you see why I live in LA and not Chicago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, because totally if you don't lived- like the weather, you wait ten minutes, and you've got either snow or oppressive heat. And uh, yeah, you well, leave. next year we're coming out there. Yeah, yes, there you go. That's right. Yeah. We're uh, yeah, um, L.A. Um, and Anaheim is the next place for Star Wars celebration next year. So um, sweet. We may, yeah, we should try to have a little six hundred two club yes. meeting. John, you meet us down there. But I know you love yourself some Disneyland. I do, I do, and that uh, actually the time would be perfect because I need to renew my pass, so um, yeah, I'll see you guys there. We will probably not be able to get into Galaxy's Edge. Not, <laughs> in, just yeah. gonna, not unless yeah. they do something special for the, the people going to Celebration to give them the right. opportunity to visit. Otherwise, right. no, I, I'm sure it'll be blocked. I'm going to try. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are so excited to be talking about Mission Impossible 3 tonight. Before we do that, wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone um, for checking us out and listening to the show. Uh, of course, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are over on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Uh, give us a star rating and review over there. Let, you, let us know what you think of the show. Help other people find the show. Of course, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, you know, whether it's Google Play or Stitcher or any of those places. You can also find us on Twitter at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. There's the listeners-only discussion group there on Facebook called the Babel Conference. 
where you can join listeners from all over the world talking about all the different shows we're doing here. And then we're on trek.fm online. And maybe you would like to send us an email. Christy and I really do enjoy getting emails. Go over to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and then that will come to Christy and I. So, John, you mentioned before we started recording that you had not had the unfortunate chance to watch Mission Impossible 2, which I, I totally understand, you know, the fact that you weren't able to make the show and you just missed it. I, I get that. But, you know, we start a new mission here with Mission Impossible 3, and we're going to have a completely different director. But all the way back in 2002, I don't know if either of you guys knew this, um, but the first director that they have for Mission Impossible 3 was going to be David Fincher, which can you imagine what kind of movie we would have gotten with him? I mean, hopefully it wouldn't have it would have been more like Gone Girl and instead of like, you know, Alien 3. But <laughs> still, I mean, it could have been a completely different style of movie with him as director. I think that's a solid choice. I mean, uh, the the thing that I've liked so far about Mission Impossible, and I can only speak to these two right now, can't break the timeline, you know, is that uh, the first one had a distinct Brian De Palma stamp on it. And this movie, Mission Impossible 3, has its own stamp on it. And the thing that took me away from Mission Impossible 2 was the very distinctive stylistic stamp that it had on it. I just remember watching the ads at the time, seeing the trailer at the time. I wanted no part of that movie. <laughs> and somehow I managed to avoid it all these years. Now, look, I, I feel honor bound at the end of our Mission Impossible discussion to just go back and finally watch that movie. Um, but what I've liked so far is, is that They've managed to stay in uh, in the universe and keep the interesting consistencies alive, but allow the directors to flex a little bit of muscle here and there and, and put their own style uh, within that formula. Yeah, I um, don't have experience much with David Fincher's other work, but I, I definitely agree as far as I didn't did not want it to be at all like Mission Impossible 2. Um, I just it just felt like the style choices of that director took me completely out of my interest in the plot and the characters. And it felt like all I was watching was the ridiculousness of things happening. And it just it was too much suspension of disbelief for me, um, especially with the stunts. So I, I really like that with this movie that we ended up bringing it back to what life is really about and it felt much more, I hate to overuse the word grounded, but it did feel more grounded and it, not like preposterous stunts that aren't possible. Well, yeah, I think that's the theme that we're going to keep coming back to in this is that there are the places where the mission impossible movies really push that envelope. They, they really challenge your understanding of what, what is quote-unquote realistic, but whether it's a combination of the, the writing and acting, directing, what, whatever we give the most weight to in there, you know, I, I'm looking at David Fincher's filmography here. I forgot that Zodiac was his mm, movie that yeah. he uh, directed that in 2007, and that's a movie where 
they keep ratcheting up the tension, but it feels so real world. Just every little detail, you feel like you are in that world of San Francisco when all that was actually happening. And it's that level of um, attention to detail, that level of realism that helps a movie like Mission Impossible. Because you know you're going to be challenged when they get to some extreme stunt. But if they've managed to build your relationship with the characters, your sympathy for the characters, and your investment in what's going on, then it's okay. Then you're, you're sort of thrilled by that, uh, by that suspension of disbelief when you mm-hmm. get to it. Well, it's fascinating to me, too, because, you know, uh, Fincher leaves because of creative differences. They replaced that director later on with Joe Carnahan, which I am not real familiar with any of his work because I have not seen uh, any of his movies up until I've seen his A-Team uh, that he did that came out. Um, but, you know, the the movies that he would have directed uh, by that point were like Narc and ticker and things like that i just hadn't really seen any of these films and so um but i mean he's working on it for a while i mean he's got uh like kenneth brauna playing a uh, a guy who's based on timothy mcveigh uh he's got um carrie ann moss and scarlett johansson in roles because dandy newton has not decided to come back um so i mean Talk about some serious star power that you've got coming into this movie. And then again, it falls through. And so it's like, (laughs) this movie has a very hard time getting off the ground. And, you know, he left again because of creative differences with Cruz. Because Cruz, I guess, is, is, is saying, you know, he doesn't like the tone that the movie has. And so... He's the one who calls J.J. Abrams after watching uh, the first two seasons of Alias and saying, yeah, this is the guy we want to have direct this film. And because of all the production stuff, Cruz takes a major hit with pay um, just to make sure that this movie happens. And so, you know, in the end... Do they make the right choice going with Abrams here? And what do you guys think about his direction? And Christy, specifically, you know, you've gotten to see one, two, and three now. Um, So did this hit the sweet spot for you or did they miss the mark? This absolutely hit the sweet spot for me because, I mean, I felt like even though all of this background was happening, you can't tell with the finished product where it ended up. I feel like if you had never told me any of that, about how it, you know, went back and forth between directors and, um, you know, Tom taking a pay cut to end up making it happen and pulling in JJ, I would have never known anyway, because they ended up with such a beautiful movie to me. And it really speaks to the fact of how I already love JJ's other work. Um, Speaking of Force Awakens. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and, And a million other things that he's done that I love. So... I was kind of predisposed to liking this just because he ended up directing it. But I think that they just made a lot of really good choices together on this. And, you know, I don't always say trust in Tom Cruise, but clearly this time that worked. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I, I feel similar to what you do. So if we're, we're getting off of the, you know, what if David Fincher Mission Impossible talk and then to, uh, you know, what really happened with J.J. Abrams doing Mission Impossible. Fascinating to me that, yeah, it, it was such a troubled production history to get it up and running. And this was J.J. Abrams' first feature movie. So, it, and it is, look, most directors do not walk into a huge budgeted uh, uh, blockbuster, expected blockbuster movie with a, uh, a a franchise history. That is typically not your first uh, uh, feature film directorial debut. Um, but what he does here is he, he does all the things that I wanted to have happen. And we talk about having that foot in the real world. But more so than a Fincher, J.J. Abrams also has a foot in this kind of fantasy world too. It, hence him doing Star Wars and Star Trek and, uh, uh, you know, shows like Alias and Lost. And, you know, he, he's, he's got the real world stuff, but he, he also pushes that beyond a little bit. Uh, no Star Trek pun intended there. So it's a good choice. I, I think clearly he delivered. Uh, when I finished watching this a couple of times for our discussion today, I thought, though, of uh, an interview that I shot a long time ago with Will Wheaton. This was before the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie came out. And, of course, there was so much speculation about how that would go. And uh, Will was a little bit cagey about his answers. He, he said that he liked what he had seen of J.J. Uh, Abrams' work so far. And he said that what J.J. was really good at was starting something. Mm. But he kind of left it at that. So J.J. is good at starting something, but where does he go from there? And if I have any nitpicks with this movie, I think it, it, it lies on where we end up in the movie and what the wrap-up is here for this movie. Um, I think it has a really strong start. I think it has a really strong middle act. Uh, but by the time we get to the third act and the, the conclusion here, I think that is the weakest part for me. But that's that that's saying, you know, it, it's being, say, a little too critical to call it the weakest moment. It's the weakest moment in what is a very strong movie overall. And I'm sorry if I'm giving away my review <laughs> right away, but just telling you guys what to be prepared for. Yeah, I think that's something, you know, one of the things, you know, coming from two, for me, I mean, this is like a breath of fresh mm -hmm. air. It's, it's, it's like, you know, having just this awful taste washed out of your mouth. You know, it's, it's like biting into something and having the worst flavor imaginable, like sour milk or something. And then, you know, getting a glass of, you know, 30 year old scotch to just like try and wash it out. And it's like, that's what this movie feels like. And so coming into it, you know, I think the thing that, J.J. Abrams is able to do is tap into the things that made the first Mission Impossible work and just the series in general, which is that you cared about the character of Ethan and the people around him. You know, De Palma was able, I think, to, to make you care about characters that didn't weren't even on screen that long. You know, and, and so that's the thing I think he's able to do is to, to bring this story... It, to a place where you care about what's going on with Tom Cruise's character, Ethan, and the people around him. And to create a mystery that then 
unravels some of that. Um, and there's plenty of great espionage. There's there's plenty of great action. But I felt like even with all the explosions happening, with all the running, because J.J. Abrams movies are all about people running. <laughs> you know, I think this is the, the, the point in the films where everything becomes about how fast Tom Cruise can run somewhere. <laughs> he and he so, does a lot of that. Yeah. He does a lot of that. Um, but I mean, if you notice that any movie that J.J. Abrams directs, people, people are always running and they're always sweaty. Um, yeah. and this movie has a lot of that too. And, but, but in all of that, I care about what's happening to the character, you know? Um, and, and I think that's the thing here is that this whole storyline, I feel like, um, JJ is able to bring it back to being personal. And so when he's crafting this new story, I thought that that was the smartest thing. Like we upend everything at the beginning of the movie with where Ethan is and where the, where he is by starting with a teaser, like a a cold open that is so intense. Um, and then he brings you into this like breath state, like, okay. And then you, you know, we have to spend the rest of the movie getting there. But I mean, that is the way to open this movie to show you that it's going to be completely different from the second one, because, Wow, I forgot actually how intense that cold open is. Yeah, I love that that's yeah. how they opened it. First of all, I love a cold open. I'm always a fan of bring me in in the middle of the story and then use the rest of the movie to explain it to me because I, I would rather be shown not told in the dialogue. Um, and so I, I, I thought that was brilliant. And I think also based on JJ doing things like Lost, for example, you can tell he's great with suspense. And they also use the music, especially in this one, to really build that and especially in that opening. Um, And I mean, props to Philip Seymour Hoffman as well. Yeah, I I know that we'll get to our villain discussion, but um, that that really caught me off guard uh, was seeing that opening the way that it was. And 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 I figured out, you know, a a minute into it, oh, we're we're seeing the ending. We will end up here (laughs) at Mm -hmm. some point in this movie. Um, But I I thought it was, uh, yeah, it was super cool. And like you, I'm a sucker for a good cold open. So bring it on. With with the story here too, I mean, again, we we kind of upend everything. You know, Ethan's retired from the field work. You know, he's training new recruits. He's getting married. You know, I mean, they really create a whole new structure for Ethan's life. Um, and I, I I think you know, even trying to think back to when this movie came out, that's very unexpected. Um, for me going into the film how did you guys feel about that and how did that work for you because that's a really key part to this story this relationship that he has with you know Michelle Moynihan and, and the fact that he's trying to give up this lifestyle because he's found something else that you know um, means something to him I think that that is the best part in the cornerstone of the whole plot of this movie because I think that first of all if you didn't have a great actress playing his wife, that it wouldn't work. Um, But I also think that the choice to write the story this way now for Ethan was perfect because it makes you have a lot more skin in the fight, basically. I mean, you know, if you think back to movies where Bond, for example, was just 
being Bond and out there going on his missions. And it was all about getting the job done and not really caring about who you hurt along the way and sleeping with tons of different women. Um, you're not as invested emotionally in what's happening. You're enjoying the ride, but it's not so deeply meaningful to you. And so I, I love this kind of thing in a story because it makes you say, okay, Ethan's got something to lose. And like, that's what's so great too about things like Spider-Man is when he has Mary Jane or, you know, someone else to lose. Um, so I, I think that that gives this so much. I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Bond because that, that was something that I kept coming back to is how they're treating the character of Ethan Hunt compared to how we treat the character of James Bond. And, and it, it was that relationship that, that absolutely, you know, they'll toy with that every now and then in the Bond movies, sometimes to a very good effect, sometimes it just sort of falls flat. Um, but they're, you know, again, we're talking about two franchises that exist in the sort of fantasy spy world, but we still need the things that ground the characters. We still need the things that make us identify at least partly with what's going on so we can feel the emotion of the film. This was just a really simple, grounded, smart way to give a life and backstory to this character who otherwise would just be James Bond with an American accent. Um, so I'm, I'm so glad that they, they found a, a sweetness and a believability about their relationship just from the, the, the simple act of him having to lie about going on a work trip. But then when you see it in his eyes, when he comes back, he just had to watch a colleague die. You know, this isn't the lie you can keep up over and over and over again. Uh, because the job actually takes its toll on him. I thought all that was really wonderfully, wonderfully played. Um, and it definitely gave me an appreciation for, uh, for what they're doing in this movie and the way, the, the route that they were taking this, uh, even just to raise the stakes for what it means to Ethan Hunt to be successful or unsuccessful on this mission. You know, we, uh, we we haven't had nearly that kind of thing with the Bond films. We we get a, a, a taste of that from time to time. You know, Matt, I'll reference your favorite Bond movie, which is OHMSS, Owner Master's Secret Service. When we, we go to the trouble of actually building a relationship for Bond, something that we can sink our teeth into, um, but then we don't get that in the later Bond at all. It's like they feel like, oh, oh, we went too far. We made a mistake. We got to wind that back. So it was really nice to see the dedication to uh, to the personal relationship in this movie. It, it only helps to to drive your investment in every other aspect of the film. Yeah, I, I appreciate that a lot. What you're saying, John and, and Christy, and I think you know when you make it personal, when you can find a way to make it personal for the spy, and one of the re ways to do that is. You know, I, I, I feel like allowing Ethan to have this life, you know, as we move on into the other films, it helps cement the fact of why he does what he does. You know, wh what is it that drives him then to do this? What has been driving him to do this? And it, it's been his abilities have allowed other people to have this life. And now he's got it and he wants to protect it, too. Um, and, 
you know, you end up in this place, which is why superheroes, you, you know, Christy, you called us out. It's why superheroes have a love interest, whether a male or female superhero, because um, if that person that they're in love with is not a superhero, you know, they can be put in jeopardy and it makes it all the more personal and real. You know, we can feel that, you know, we can't be superheroes and most of us aren't going to be super spies, but we can feel the, the, the threat then of, you know, if what they hold most dear, what they love the most, whether, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, whatever their significant other is, it, it, it gives us that in. And I think you make Ethan a real person by doing this, you know, and by again, making it personal for him helps us connect with the character, but it also helps us connect with the story. And and I think this is the thing to me that makes this story so special is that in the end, it doesn't matter what the bad guy is or what the MacGuffin of the story is. It's the personal stakes of of trying to save the one he loves and the rest of the world, right? You You put those two together, it doesn't really matter what the bad guy is after. You just know it's bad. Like, as, as um, you know, I love that you get Simon Pegg's Benji here in this movie, and he just is like, yeah, I just, I, I think of it as like, I think he calls it like the God killer or whatever. It's like, it's so bad that it doesn't matter what it is. It's just universal Armageddon is what we're talking about. Like, if somebody wants something this badly, um, and it's smart, J.J., understands that I don't have to unwrap the mystery box of what it is that we're really after. It doesn't even matter what it is because it's just bad and the personal stakes is what we're really involved in here in this movie. And I think that's the thing that I come at this from, you know, from the first movie and then slogging through the second movie, we get to this third movie. JJ found the key, which is to make it personal for Ethan and his team um, and I think that is really good. And part of that, I mean, just starts at the very beginning with him having to go say Carrie Russell, um, the person that he's trained. And again, it's a personal thing. You know, he's trained these people and he's sending them out to do these missions he's not doing anymore. And now they're, they're caught. And I just, I really appreciated that. Um, and, uh, you know, good casting, obviously it's JJ. He loves to use people that he's used before. Whether it's Greg Grumberg or somebody like Carrie Russell, uh, who, <clears throat> who will also be in uh, The Rise of Skywalker, too. Um, you know, it's great, though, because you immediately care about her because at that point she had been in Felicity and, you know, everybody was in love with Carrie Russell. And so her being her suffering, it's just great casting uh, then because you feel that you feel for that character and you feel what Ethan is feeling. And so. The personal stakes is really what makes this story work, I think, at its best. You know, like you said, John, there may be some quibbles here and there about how things wrap up. But the fact that there's this personal stake is really what keeps us invested the whole way through. And to even... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I... Oh, go ahead, Christine. <laughs> We're both going, no, you, no, you. <laughs> um, I, I was gonna say Lee I'm pointing at you no you're pointing at me no stop pointing at me because you're pointing at me I'm sorry I had to do the end of the spider verse it had to be done sorry uh, so what I was gonna say was that, that even the personal piece is what also makes it so feel like a betrayal when you see Billy Crudup's character come in later as the mastermind pulling all the strings 
because you keep thinking, oh, he's the one person in the agency who's still Ethan's friend and who's looking out for him. And that, you know, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Lawrence Fishburne's character um, is actually the villain, but then everything gets turned on its head again. And you see that it was actually Billy the entire time. Um, I, I love a reveal like that, but that personal tie is what makes that feel so difficult for you is that you're thinking, wow, he was acting like his friend this whole time and then doing this horrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. They, they managed to build relationships all over the place. And, um, uh, again, compared to the Bond movies, you know, um, M for the majority of the uh, the Bond franchise has been this cool, aloof, um, it doesn't really matter who is in that role. That's just the person that gives direction and, and sometimes will, uh, will provide a little texture there for Bond to make a decision. Um, and then you get a, a little, particularly when you go back to the original stuff, Desmond Lillen, uh, you get a little of the, uh, the the kind of fatherly or the cantankerous uncle to uh, to Bond's character. But but these are all just sort of workplace people. And what they did very nicely here is keep toying with your ability to decide who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. Uh, did that really really nicely. Um, uh, by yeah, yeah, by by playing with your sympathy and seeing like, oh wait, Ethan will actually get out of this horrible predicament because he's got friends on the inside. You know, I I love that they fooled me with that. <laughs> I thought that was that was absolutely great because it, it again it made it worthwhile to him. It, it made him be the one who had to question what was going on and what did these relationships that he had, work relationships, but yes, friendships, what did they actually mean to him? That was really well done. I, I think, you know, that's interesting to as well as, you know, we look back at the first movie and, and then in this third movie, you know, it's very similar in the sense that the villains are above us. You know, the, 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 the bad people aren't just, you know, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's, Owen, who's really bad here, is who's helping him, you know, and the whole movie, the back and forth of, you know, is it Lawrence Fishburne, the head of the IMF or not, is is so important in that, you know, and the fact that they then flip it. So it's the guy that, you know, you should see coming. But, you know, I, I don't think I did the first time. I, I, I can't tell you whether I did or not. And. Um, I just, and, and the, and the part of it too, is you, you play with such great characters, you know, Lawrence Fishburne plays just an inflappable Theodore Brazel, you know, and really Crudup comes off as such a, a nice guy as John Musgrave, you know, like the guy who is in your corner and like, they just play it so well so that when you make that flip, um, it, it's fascinating to me because, yeah, as bad as Owen is, these guys are worse because they're betraying everything they say that they stand for, you know, and, um, you know, Billy Crudup's character, you know, complain uh, or his goal isn't actually, it isn't awful because what his goal is is to try and get to the root cause of all of these things, right? To be able to root out these um, 
these insurgencies and 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 to to really get to the the heart of the matter of the these terroristic organizations and he's using owen to be able to do that um and 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 a lot of spy movies isn't that kind of what we do Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and so it's like his his goal isn't awful, but the way he's going about it is 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 he's awful, gone off the deep you know, end by betraying his organization. Yeah, he's completely gone off the deep end. He's the, the crazy guy in the corner who's like, you know what? This is how we beat them. We just partner with them. And then and then so like we'll cause the damage and then the U.S. will have to come in and fix everything and then everything will be fine. That's what we do. And you're like, yeah, OK, anyway. Yeah, we, we be like our enemies. What could possibly go wrong with that plan if we just act like our enemies? Sure. Everything will work out fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll yeah. be fine. I, I do have to admit that, you know, when we uh, first introduced that uh, uh, that doubt about Brazil, about uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character, um, I, I was kind of thinking like, oh, no, uh, well, I skipped number two. So if I go back to the first Mission Impossible and it's Jim Phelps, who's a bad guy, will this just be a theme over and over that the bad guy is always on the inside, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I just thought like, oh, do we need to constantly revisit that trope in spy movies uh, just to, again, raise the stakes for the main character? Um, but it, again, it was handled well. And I think to your point, Matt, uh, when when we finally get to the real bad guy, um, that we understand that it's a it's a perverted and twisted sense of that kind of hypernationalistic uh dedication to his job or, or or to what he thinks the idea of his job is so it's not completely unthinkable it's not like he's just the mustache twirling villain ready to take over the world no he he's an insider he thinks he knows what is right and he thinks that everybody around him is wrong, so he has to do it himself. Um, so that that made that aspect of it better for me. When I think, you know, then him working with, you know, I, I think Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain, the other villain here is a revelation. You know, he is perfect. Like, absolutely perfect. I mean, the the whole airplane scene where Ethan's trying to interrogate him and he's just like, do you have a girlfriend? Do you, you know, like, and he's like, and I'm going to find her and I'm going to, I'm going to kill you in front of her and then I'm going to kill her. Like, there's, there's no remorse. There is, there is complete amorality in, in his actions and there's complete conviction that he doesn't give a rat's anything about anyone other than completing his mission and which is probably just making more money like it's chilling his performance and i think that's the thing i love it it is so freaking scary his performance because there are people out there like that and you know it and that just it chills you to the bone i love that you brought that up because he's my favorite part of the whole movie to be honest i mean because of that look on his face that he's capable of doing that's like there is no remorse absolutely whatsoever he's completely resigned to what he's decided and he doesn't you know have any kind of give in him i mean it's like especially in the scene when he's doing the counting down in the cold open 
you think at some point there's going to be some sort of wager between the two of them, you know, where he's going to stop counting and say, okay, you've given me what I want. But he just never stops. And it just escalates more. And you're like, I can't take this anymore. (laughs) And like, that's how I felt even in the airplane scene. Um, And I thought it was masterful, too, that they have uh, his friends come in and take him away from Ethan, Um, you know, in the, the whole truck chase scene across the bridge um i think he just absolutely was the best choice for that role yeah he's a terrifying sociopath um and he's absolutely riveting and it just breaks my heart that we have no more philip seymour hoffman to play incredible roles like this um it, it was the perfect understated way to play this character when you're in a movie where everything is bigger than life, where everything is heightened, where the action scenes, the technology, your stars like Tom Cruise are, are bigger than anybody for Hoffman to come in and play this understated, creepy, quiet, uh, uh, just chilling villain was, uh, was amazing. And, and I wanted to, you know, I, I, Managed to squeeze in two screenings. I wanted to watch it again just to watch him, you know, because he, he's that good. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, I think the, the thing that, like you said, John, that he does is that he's not overly loquacious or anything. He just has this steely, steady presence, you know. I mean, uh, he has one look and it's blue steel mm-hmm. and he means it. You know, uh, and I think that's what what sells it to you, um, that there is never a waiver. There is always the conviction that he's going to get what he wants, regardless of how he has to get it. And I think that is something that is very difficult to do with a villain where you don't know what their motivation is. I don't care what his motivation is. I don't even know. They they just play it so well. It's done so well that this is the type of villain where you 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 don't have to have a villain always have to you know have this tragic backstory so you can try to understand them. No man, this guy is just a bastard, and I don't I don't need to know his backstory to know that he's just straight up evil. And yes, we want him to die by the end. Uh, and when he does, we're all happy. And I feel completely fulfilled with his character arc in that he didn't have one. He was just an evil bastard the whole time. <laughs> yeah, it's, 100%. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. And I, I can't... I'm trying to think of other movies right now where I feel like that's the case. And very few come to mind where they've pulled off a villain like that. Yeah, I, I honestly can't think of any off the top of my head. But, mm. but yes, you're right. <laughs> you're yeah. right. And, and what a way to go. Because I, when it led up to that final fight, and then the, the car just comes by in no time, and he's gone, oh, and you hear a little bit yes. of the shocked expression from people on the street. It, it was like, you almost expected another scene to acknowledge that he was nope. not, nope, nope, he's just gone. I, and that's it. Yep, yep. Carry on with the rest of the movie now. <laughs> with like a, a good... Um, grounded movie, it's unceremonious, you know, and there's no mm-hmm. time to dawdle because, you know, Cruz, Heath and Hunt has to get back because he's he's got to save Julia, you know? So I just, I think that's the most important thing too, that the movie, even with some of the craziness that happens in it, he 
it's grounded enough to let the villain die and it just goes on by, you know, because we've got other things going on and it's just really smart. I did think of one other villain that they've done like that and it was actually from Bond and it was the reason I loved Skyfall so much, Javier Bardem. There you go. There's yeah, some similar true. DNA there. Just a yeah, horrible that, human there's being. There's a similarity there, yeah. Yeah. In the yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, yes. Not as a person. <laughs> yes. But anyway, yes. I love that. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that I thought that this movie did well, like the first movie, is that we created a little team for Ethan. And some of it's old and some of it's new. And, you know, I love that you get Ving Rhames, you know, coming back as Luther. Um, but then we add uh, Jonathan Reese Myers and Maggie Q to his his group of people. And, uh, and of course, a little bit of Simon Pegg in there with Benji, which was great. So I really appreciated the way that they utilized each one of those characters and, and they used their their different talents to the to benefit. And I, I just that's important because, you know, Mission Impossible is more about a team than it is just about the main character, you know, uh, of one. And I felt like that they were able to kind of recapture some of that that had been in the first movie, wasn't really in the second movie, and then they brought it back, I think, to full effect here much better and and just like they created characters i'm like okay i kind of want some of these to reappear now when we move on into the next films because there were some memorable people here so first thing i've got to throw in though is i was really excited just because jonathan reese myers is so pretty (laughs) so i was glad he was in it just for that but um i do also think he's a good actor um and uh, i think you're right though matt that the team aspect was the important thing that they needed to bring back to Mission Impossible and and to really differentiate it from things like Bond to show that, you know, part of Ethan's power is that he has a team, that he's not in this alone. Um, and, I, and I love that this is the beginning of people that will reappear as his team going forward, um, like Ving Rhames over and over and uh, like Simon Pegg. So I... I really love that back and forth, especially between the actors that they chose for the roles. Um, I think that Simon Pegg always plays the adorable buffoon. <laughs> and uh, so I don't care what anybody says. I love him. Um, and and I think really you've got to give some props to Jonathan Reese Myers and Maggie Q, even though, you know, we don't see them again for what they did for this movie. Um, you don't get a lot of them, but their whole part in the uh, scenes at the Vatican, I thought were great. Yeah, that, that whole sequence was really, uh, that that felt the most like kind of classic Mission Impossible to me, just, you know, getting the, the makeup. So you always have to have a mask scene, you always have to have mm-hmm. the reveal like that, just the technology involved was super cool. Um, and, and I'll just say, look, Ving Rhames, I think is cool, no matter what. In anything, he's just cool. I, I will watch him in anything. I think he's great. Um, and Simon Pegg, did you guys read the the bit of trivia that Simon Pegg had made some joke about how uh, it was right after Shaun of the Dead, and people asked if he was going to uh, 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 try to expand his career a bit. And he made some offhand joke. He was like, well, I mean, I'm not going to be in the next Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> But that's, that's sort of awesome. what, what got him the attention to then do the next Mission Impossible movie. So uh, that was cool. Yeah, I, I thought he was he was fine. There, there was uh, not 
too much of him. Simon Pegg, uh, because he was playing this with some comedy in it, um, I think you kind of run the risk of deflating a lot of the the tension that was in the movie. But I, I thought he did right on in his role here. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that I appreciated is that they got like they just gave them all something to do, you know, and it was fun what they gave them to do, especially with that Vatican scene. And, and like you said, John, it's class and Mission Impossible where it's the impossible thing to do, and we're gonna do it. You know, we're gonna you know steal a guy basically at the Vatican <laughs> um and uh which is such a hard place to get into you know and you know of course then they do that again when they um have to get into that building in Shanghai which you know it's another possible thing to do and so you know they set up these uh these missions which live up to the name and possible mission force and, you know, you created characters that were really fun. And like you said, Christy, you know, I, we unfortunately don't see Jonathan Reese Myers or Maggie Q again, but they, I think they leave their mark on this film in a way that leaves you thinking, man, I would like to see them return sometime because they were fun characters. Um, and uh, that, you know, created for fun banter between the group and everything. And so, uh, and I'm glad that, you know, you get Simon Pegg and, and, at least being Rames coming back over and over again because they really are fantastic, you know, um, in the, in this movie, uh, and they add something and and I think they saw that that spark. Um, so um, we talked a little bit about you know the character that Michelle Moynihan plays of Julia, but what did you guys think of her role in the movie with the story and and how they utilized her in the film? Um, I, I, it was kind of perfect, you know. It, it's a tough thing to do to uh, have a character kind of on screen briefly. Uh, it, you're not creating a huge backstory uh, for her at all. Um, but the the moments that they picked were just right, and part of what sold that was just Tom Cruise selling the idea of that relationship. It also really helps to go back to something that we all responded to really helped to have that cold opening uh, because you, you showed the stakes right away. Uh, and then you had those little references throughout as they're on a mission when they're at the Vatican and, uh, and there's Luther being Rames saying, you know, uh, don't, don't get married. Don't get into a relationship. These things will ruin you as an agent. Oh, by the way, I already did, <laughs> you know? So these were all, they were all moments that sold and solidified them as a couple, but but she was just believable. She's, you know, she's, I think, making her a nurse, um, it, it gave her, uh, just out of the gate, you know, it, it gives her a role of importance because she's also got a job that she's dedicated to, something that she's good at. Uh, she's smart and capable. She's not just the, the quote unquote damsel in distress. Uh, she has a lot going on anyway in her life outside of Ethan. The fact that then they're together and, and they have this sort of loving and, and otherwise normal relationship. Um, I, I thought they, they, they gave us those elements in just the right way to get us on board with it uh, for their story. 
Yeah, I agree with you, John. And I think that I, I was looking, trying to find who the um, director of photography was as well, because the thing I think to me sold their relationship for me, in addition to her performance being so great, was the way that they shot different scenes of the two of them um, together and apart. But um, even, you know, like showing uh, when he drinks that drug in the car when, you know, they capture him toward the end of the movie and he's having sort of memories of being with her. Um, it's just this really nice way of portraying what it's like to have a significant other and the way that you think of them in your mind and the way that you fondly remember moments with them, I thought was really nice. Um, and then, too, I think that the scene where they had them get married abruptly in the hospital um, and then consummate um, it was a nice moment to show that what really mattered to him was being with her that it you know wasn't about the job for him and that they could just get married later that it was like you know he's got to do it now while he's got the time yeah I think the thing that I really appreciated about her character was you know in the end she gets thrown into all of this, right? She gets kidnapped and, and um, you know, instead of becoming the damsel in the stress in the end, she ends up saving his life. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she's the one who shoots everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and just takes him down and, and then, you know, brings him back to life. You know, that in the end, she needs him, uh, or that he needs her. Um, if she hadn't been there, honestly, he would have been dead. Um, and I think... There's something really effective, of, of course, about that scene where you do get that mask revealed that you're not expecting, I don't think, when he pulls off the mask and it's not her that he's shot. Oh, yeah. You know, that that Owen hasn't shot uh, Julia. Um, and so they do some really smart things in this movie with her as the character. And it's not just about servicing Ethan's character. It's just about serving the story and their life together. And it really does feel very smart and cohesive for them. Um, and you do want to root for them then to make it as a couple. Um, and where they leave off the movie where she knows his life now. She knows this mm-hmm. life. Um, and it's not a lie anymore. And it creates this interesting aspect that will then be followed up through three more films, um, which is really interesting. And so, um, and it creates a character like, like you said, John, they have a pretty normal existence beyond uh, the fact that Ethan has this insane job. Um, and it wasn't insane before because he had gotten out of it. He was just training people. And, you know, every time that he thinks he's out, he gets pulled back in, you know. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that they they just cast somebody that you immediately gravitate towards with Michelle Moynihan. I think she's so likable and charming and and uh, i i I don't mean this derogatorily but she's just adorable so you want to you're on her side um and you're on their side as a couple and i think that was just really smart and and i think they had good chemistry together too so um it it, again that just made that storyline believable but more than just being about you know ethan and and what it does for him it's about the story together and i think that's great and I, I was just going to add that she's so good in that scene where Ethan is 
dead on the floor, electrocuted on the floor. And she's got to take the gun. She's got to take out the bad guys. They they were able just visually to ratchet up the tension in that. But her fear, her unease with that situation is great. And then when they leave, yeah, it's a little bit of that... Um, they are playing a little lighter maybe than you would expect, but just them walking away and they're both limping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're both, they're both just filthy. And as you pointed out, Matt sweaty, you, you know, th- there was something charming and still believable about that. And I have to add to what you're saying too, John, I love it's such like a, a married moment because if for anybody that's got a significant other that you've been with a long time or you're married or whatever, when he's showing her how to use the gun for the first time and he stops and says, and don't point it at me. It's just, yeah, right. it's such a thing <laughs> right. that like, hopefully that doesn't happen, but to anyone else, but I'm saying like, you know, there are things like yes. that that happen in your relationship when you've been together that long that you're just like, yeah, we've been there before. Uh, right. Good point. What did you guys, you know, so much of these films becomes about these action set pieces and, you know, um, big stunts that happen. And so how did this one live up for you? Um, when it came to, you know, what they do action wise. For me, the action in this was just flawless. I mean, everything felt so in your face and gritty in a good way, um, but still realistic. It, um, it, it felt like it could have gotten a little outlandish when they're trying to plan this jump onto the roof in Shanghai. Um, but it, feels so gripping when he's sliding down the glass and you're thinking that he might not make it, but you're going, well, he's the hero, so he has to make it, right? Uh, I think the way they shot it, again, makes all the difference, too. Um, but it it was awesome to me. All of it, I was along for the ride. Yeah, it, it's the same kind of push and pull that we talk about with the Bond movies, you know, where you, you can have an outrageous over-the-top set piece, but then you sort of you immediately have to bring it back to the real world. You have to bring it back to the stakes with a character and your investment in that character. So um, my favorite sequence was the sequence at the Vatican because every Mission Impossible story, uh, you have to have, it's almost like in a heist movie. You have to have the impossible place to break into or break out of. You have to have the unexpected technology. You have to have the, the moment that it goes wrong but then our guys are so good, they're able to bring it back on track. And then you have to have the totally unexpected ending for that. I did not expect him to blow up the car. Clever way to get out of it and uh, and kill uh, Davian. Um, so that, to me, was actually my, uh, my favorite of those fancy set pieces. Thought it was shot well. Visually, it's stunning anyway. Um, and even if we have to you know, stretch our disbelief a bit when you have something like 3D printing the perfect mask and it always works and uh, the, the voice chip that you just, oh yeah, you just get a, get a sample and then suddenly you can talk and you'll sound exactly like that person. Look, I'm fine with suspending disbelief uh, to that extent. Um, so it, it, it's always that back and forth and they they gave me just enough of those because... Look, then you you stretch it enough where, uh, Christy, you're pointing out, you know, this daring uh, break-in at the the office building. 
to steal the rabbit's foot. But you don't end there. You, you actually wind up in this tiny, gritty, nasty place down an alley, you know? And that, that again, just made it feel real and, again, raised the stakes for what was happening to Julia and what will happen to Ethan. Yeah, he's a hero. He can't die. But uh, what's going to happen to his noggin after that, uh, after that explosive charge, that electrical charge, you know, takes its toll in there. So all, all that stuff really, uh, really worked well. It was a perfect choice of, uh, of setting an action for, for each one of those moments. I think one of the things that really I was struck by with this movie is how good that J.J. Abrams can be at action and allowing mm -hmm. action to tell story. Mm -hmm you know, um, and, and allowing the action to mean something other than just, just being action, you know, um, you know, the, the, the chase we had with the helicopter at the beginning, which, you know, uh, John Mills has pointed out to me, uh, is very similar to the Falcon chase that we'll get in the force awakens. It's very <laughs> similar. Um, so JJ does like to repeat himself sometimes, but here, you know, this is his first major film, um, and I think he proves himself to be a master at creating action set pieces that are more than just being action, you know, and I, I love the whole, you know, heist that we get in the Vatican, but I love that heist where they're planning it in Shanghai and he's literally doing the math on the, on the window to make sure that this is actually going to be possible, you know? And like, I'm like, I have no idea if that math is true, but <laughs> the fact that he can do the math to make sure that it's true is, is a really nice moment for a character that we're saying, yes, this is about reality. It's not just, Oh, we're going to do a thing and it's going to be impossible and literally could never be done. No, this is something that could be done. It's just not something that anybody would actually probably ever try. Um, and so I just, those kind of things, I think they do a really good job. And like you said, John, the fact that you end the movie in this very gritty, kind of nasty, gnarly place, uh, you know, this, who knows what this building was? You know, it looks like some place for back alley, you know, surgeries and stuff. It just Blech. does not look like a place you want to be caught in. Yeah. Um, and yeah, with just a, a appropriately disturbing, you know, has to be knocked out death um, and then brought back to life after, you know, she shoots a few people. Uh, it's just it's really well done. And, and the way they use the masks I thought was appropriate. You know, they have one that you see coming obviously because they're making the mask. Um, but then, which is fun because it's the first time we see them actually make mm -hmm. a mask. Uh, and then two, you know, the, I, I didn't see it coming. I don't think the first time I saw it where they rip the mask off and, Oh, thank God it's not Julia, you know? So, I think they do that appropriately. It's not overused. And, and the action just, this movie has a wonderful relentlessness to it that I think keeps you along for the ride the entire time. And there's only a few mo a few moments of respite there, you know, specifically, you know, Chris, you mentioned when they get married. But otherwise, I just feel you're, you're on a roller coaster the whole time. And that's just kind of what I want, you know. And and I was thinking back too, because at this point, the the... Um, the Bourne movie had come out. You know, Jason Bourne was a thing now. And 
I still really appreciate this movie, though, and its action and the way that it's set up, the way that it's shot, the way everything goes down in it. It feels gritty and, and realistic, but with a sense of, um, I guess, uh, fantasy to it, like you were talking about, John. So all in all, I think this is just a really well done when it comes to action. It doesn't it doesn't get much better than this, you know, um, and it's not so over the top that I can't buy it either, which is what makes it so great. The the only moments uh, there there are a couple of things that I felt like either dated or or made it feel a little over the top. That bridge sequence is so good; it's so action packed. There, there's just so much happening. You you can feel again the the intensity, the heat, and the the uh, again all the sweat and all the running. It's great stuff. But then I just kept thinking, okay, what happens when all that mess is cleaned up, and you have all the people who are in their cars at the moment going. Uh, so I was driving on this bridge, and um, these helicopters <laughs> showed up, and they blew and a hole there in were it. Missiles being fired. <laughs> yeah, they actually literally blew a hole in the bridge. And their friend is saying, "Now wait a minute, you're in a car wreck." No, no, no. I, I'm not saying I was in a car wreck. I'm saying an airplane showed up out of nowhere and shot a missile into a bridge. Well, is this an American plane? Well, I don't know because then a helicopter showed up and just flew away <laughs> with it. The, like, there's just so much aftermath that has to be taken care of in a situation like that. The other thing is, uh, as you guys know, I tend to watch TV and movies with subtitles on when it's something that I am studying for a show. And uh, somewhere in the dialogue, and I would have only picked it up with the subtitles. All this stuff is happening. Do you hear what are the what are the background characters? I, don't, I can't remember if it was uh, uh, one of the uh, law enforcement or somebody said, "Does anybody have a cell phone?" And I thought, <laughs> okay, this definitely is dating this movie to when it was produced. It came out in two thousand six, right? So it, uh, it probably produced two thousand four, two thousand five. And I'm thinking, yeah, if that were today. You do not answer that question because literally everybody on that bridge who is not in an exploding car, they're all taking video of what's right. Happened. They're holding it. <laughs> yes, yeah, I get, yes, I get you. Exactly. I didn't catch that. So, well, and and speaking of that, John, there's that nice moment where they can't immediately get cell reception when they need it. Yes, which is right. kind of nice. It's like I know yeah. it's convenient for the plot here, but it also is very realistic, especially very. in that time period. Yes, yes, I love that. Mm-hmm. Lastly, um, the movie music here is done by Michael Giacchino, who's, you know, obviously worked with J.J. Abrams a lot. Um, And I felt like you, Christy, you called it out earlier, but I felt like the score uh, did a good job of benefiting the movie every time you needed it, Um, whether it was the Mission Impossible theme or just the the action music itself. You know, uh, I was listening to it today and it never just feels like generic action movie music. There's always something a little bit more to it. And I think it, it really benefits the film here. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm glad that they went in that direction. And so, um, and I, he actually does continue on with the music and four as well when they do a ghost protocol. So, um, you know, I'll be interested to see somebody get the opportunity to, to do more than one, uh, Mission Impossible movie and, and how it works. But I thought it, it's, a, it's a great soundtrack. I'm glad that you um, always bring that up, Matt, because actually I've it's something that I didn't pay as much attention to before. And I'm glad that now you've like opened my eyes to 
keeping an eye on that more when I watch movies like this. Um, because I noticed in particular in the scene where he first shows up in Shanghai, Ethan does looking for the apartment that there were music cues that were, you know, just instrumental. Um, but they were choices particularly because of where in the world he was located that sounded like what I would think possibly Chinese drums would sound like like just a gentle little percussion here and there um, that just really suits the environment really well. And so I, I've noticed more things like that because you've talked about music and score so much with all the movies we watch. So thank you. Yeah, uh, same. I mean, the the soundtrack is really solid. Um, it, it does not take away from any of the action or any of the uh, emotional moments of the film. It helps to underline those. And I get what I want out of a Mission Impossible movie, which is the Mission Impossible yes. theme. <laughs> That's just, yeah, it is so important to me. It is so identified with that show. Um, it, it can't help but be identified with the movies. You say Mission Impossible, and I immediately think of the match striking and that, that opening sound. And I, I think of the credits of that show. So... Yeah, I, I have to have that in these movies, and I'm glad that they stay true to that and and kind of pepper it through. They don't overdo it, but little moments that you get here and there in the uh, in the overall. Score. And did you both like the addition of "We Are Family"? <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, that was that was, that was really great. clever. It yes. was a little cheesy, but I mean, you love the point that he's just you know taped the button down on transmit and put it there and left it. Screw mm -hmm. you guys. That was, that was awesome. awesome. And I love too. He's like, "Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> what a jerk!" <laughs> oh, so perfect from Lawrence Fishburne there. So, so much fun, you know, to sit around and get a chance to talk about this one. And I'm, I'm interested now to see what the ratings are going to be for Mission Impossible Three. So, I, for the first time ever, it's really difficult for me, but I'm going to give this a ten out of ten. Unheard of for me, I know, but. It just, there's nothing I can think of that I didn't like in this movie. I mean, like I said, that one scene with the Weir family playing was a, a little bit cheesy, but it really didn't bother me because I got the point they were trying to drive with it. Um, I thought that the action was perfect. I felt like the whole movie, I was holding my breath, which is always the goal with an action movie to me. Um, I love a good heist. Uh, and I think that the casting choices for all of the roles were spot on. Um, it, I think maybe in the scene with Carrie Russell dying, that uh, her eye was a little bit much with the makeup maybe, but still not enough to take off any points for me on what I would grade the movie overall. I just, I absolutely love it. And uh, I think it's probably my favorite of all of the Mission Impossible movies. Wow. Nice, nice. Um, can't disagree with anything you said there. Uh, it is super solid, and as we've discussed in this show, the character work is great. Uh, the plot keeps you engaged. Uh, uh, the set pieces are wonderful. The, the action knows when to stretch the boundaries, but then reel it back in. Uh, the soundtrack is fantastic. Uh, but it, it really comes down to just the, the emotional core of making you invested in what's happening for these people. And uh, I really think they're firing on all cylinders when it comes to that. Now, I said earlier in the show that I had a nitpick. 
and and it has to do with the way that J.J. Abrams does stuff. And back to that criticism that I heard, which was J.J.'s really good at kind of backhanded. (laughs) J.J.'s really good at starting things. And that might have affected my uh, my take on this movie. So when I watch a Mission Impossible TV episode or a Mission Impossible movie, part of what I want out of it, you know, we get the spy adventure story. We get uh, it's part heist movie. It's also part magic trick. And it, it's sort of like Penn and Teller. When you see Penn and Teller, part of what they do is they tell you, we're doing a trick. Here's how we're doing the trick. And they do the trick for you. And you still don't know how they did it. You're still surprised by how they, even though they just told you how they do the trick, right? So for Mission Impossible, they they very often are laying out everything that they are going to do. Uh, and and there's, there's misdirection involved. You know, look, we have masks and we have technology and we have these vehicles and we have these people on radio who are standing by and here are all the agents and here there's going to be placed and here's our objective. And then you're still surprised because something either didn't go right or uh, or they didn't account for one other element and they have to improvise on the fly. And by the time you get to the, the real end, you know, by the, the final act of the movie, there's some other misdirection where you go, oh, wait, I didn't see that bit coming. But they had already told me before because I knew all the elements uh, had to be lined up in place for me. So this movie... Unlike a lot of traditional Mission Impossible, they lay all that stuff out and they nail it in the Vatican scene. Here are all the tricks, here are all the things we're going to do, here are all the the technologies we have at our disposal, we're going to do it here. But then by the time we get to the last act of the movie, we've gotten rid of all of that. And it's the heist element to go steal the rabbit's foot. And then have the final showdown. And really that final showdown is just about who's going to kill who first. And is our hero going to make it? So now that sounds like I I think that's a terrible thing. I don't think it's a terrible thing. I thought it was an interesting way to end this movie. I thought, again, emotionally, I bought into it. I thought everybody performed it well. And I liked kind of toning down and ending up in that dark, dingy place at the end. uh, That that that's all that had to be resolved at that point. Um, But for those reasons... I'm actually, I'm just going to deduct one point. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. I'm going to give it 9 out of 10 uh, electrical explodey brain implant things, um, which I hope we never have to deal with. I do not want 9 out of 10 of those, or even 1 out of 10 of those. Um, but yeah, that, that's the only place that I could think about to to not give it a perfect score. This one for me is so interesting because, you know, um, I remember it being the film that kind of reinvigorated me for Mission Impossible, especially after two. And so, you know, for me, this film has a lot of, of good memories and rewatching it. I, I think the thing that, that surprised me so much is just how well the movie stands up to time. You know, yeah, some of the technology, like the cell phones are old, but the rest of it feels so good you know and the action works and the storyline works and the characters work and and i'm invested in the characters and their story that's happening and i think abrams just does a fantastic job of resetting what mission impossible movies should be and the formula works for you know what we get all the way through fallout i think 
he does such a good job of making that happen and 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 reconstituting what Mission Impossible movie should be after what we got what they shouldn't be. And so it's such a breath of fresh air. It's so enjoyable to watch. And, you know, I would say that the reason it's not perfect for me is because those movies come later in the Mission Impossible franchise. But this is so solid. It's so good that, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like four and a half out of five helicopter chases. You know, it's it's just... It's so good, and I can't, you know, I, I, I enjoy this movie. I could watch it anytime. It's like one of those movies that I could I could pop in, I think, and watch anytime because it's just so much fun to watch. And that's wonderful coming off, too. And I'm so glad that we'll be covering, um, you know, the fourth movie together as well, and that we've already done Rogue Nation and we've done Fallout, so you can check those out. But it's been a blast getting a chance to do this and I can't wait to come back for, uh, you know, ghost protocol because they don't call it four. um, it, it, they, 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 they do away with that, um, in the next film. So we'll be back for that one. I think it's set for coming up in July. So look for that, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to our associate producers here on the show. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Wyatt Millette, and Daniel Noah for supporting the show pro, through Patreon, making sure that all of the shows keep coming to you each and every week here on Track FM. It's an expensive thing to put on this many shows each and every week, and we can't do it alone. So we ask you, help us out. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm. Be a part of the team. There's some great contribution levels you can give at that give you extra perks. But honestly, every little bit helps. And again, that is patreon.com slash trekfm. John, so great to have you back on the show. Uh, let everybody know where they can find you and follow you and talk to you over on the interwebs. Well, thanks for having me on, and and thank you for allowing me to uh, skip MI2, come back for MI3, because this is a, a real pleasure. This is a lot of fun. You can find me at uh, podcast.rottenberry.com. There you will find my shows, Mission Log, Mission Log Live, and uh, The Trek Files, which I co-produce with Larry Nemechek. You'll also find the other shows in the Roddenberry Podcast Network, Women at Warp and Priority One. Now, if you're just looking for me and you don't necessarily want to talk Trek, well, you can find me on uh, Twitter at DVD Geeks. I'm there, oh, every now and then. And you can find me on Instagram where I'm either jtamp72 or or going in slow motion. Slow-mo, gentlemen. I'll see you there. I love, I just love the uh, the retro Twitter handle with DVD geeks. <laughs> it's just it's fantastic. I, you know, I, see, one day nobody will know what that is. It, it'll be like horse and buggy geeks. What, what is this? You know? <laughs> it would be like being Betamax geek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 8-track geeks. Oh, man. Ooh, that should people? be somebody's Twitter handle. Somebody yes. get that. Um, yeah. Christy, <laughs> if uh, anybody wants to catch up with all the other things that you've got going on, of course, uh, where can they find you? Sure. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And uh, in addition to the 602 Club, which I co-host here with Matt uh, every week, I am also um, doing once a month a segment called Fashion in Five with my friends on the Star Wars Report. So um, listen for that. It's a five-minute fashion update for men and women in Star Wars. And then 
then I've just recently joined the Fanthatracks team on a podcast called Planet Leia that's going to be a once a month show. So stay tuned for our first episode of that coming out soon. And you can find me here on the network uh, doing this show, The Orb, with Chris Jones, talking all about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I am online on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd under the name MattRushing02. You can find me on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One's called Owlpost with Drea Kaufman as we go through the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And then I'm on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills talking about Star Wars each and every week. Um... It's a blast just kind of picking out a topic that we enjoyed. We had John just recently uh, interview me about my time at uh, Star Wars Celebration, so you can check that out. And then last but not least, talking about films through the lens of faith with my good friend Courtney over on a show called Cinema Stories. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Thank you.